LBZ Original. I'm Roger Berkowitz. I'm Larry Galco, and this is Name Brands, the podcast about the story behind your favorite brands. Joining us now on Name Brands is Sandy Fenwick's the face and guiding light of Boston's Children's Hospital. Sandy took over as CEO in 2013 and today oversees a 400-bed comprehensive center for pediatric health care. In addition, the folks at Children's see and treat over a half million patients annually. U.S. News & World Report once again named Boston Children's Hospital the number one pediatric hospital in the country. And in a Forbes magazine article that came out this past January, Sandy Fenwick was named one of only 10 CEOs out of 750 CEOs in the healthcare profession that's responsible for transforming healthcare in America. Sandy, we're on to have you join us today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Happy to be here. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like a coincidence to me, at least in the greater Boston area, that more and more women are heading up the region's best hospitals. Uh, going back, you had Ellen Zane, uh, who recently retired from Tufts Medical Center. Uh, Kate Welsh is uh, at Boston Medical Center. Um, Lori Glimpter uh, was newly appointed at Dana-Farber. Uh, Elizabeth Nabel at Brigham and of course you at Boston Children's. Now, I have a theory that boards are finally figuring out that women are more compassionate and have a better skill set for running hospitals. How do you respond to that? Ooh. <laughs> uh, well, I absolutely agree, first and foremost. Uh, and they are obviously dear friends and colleagues. And, um, you know, I think that uh, all of us were trying to break through that glass ceiling and and uh, move the dial. And um, I'm really glad that we have really achieved it. They are incredible people, and I'm really proud to be one of them. You know, Sandy, you mentioned about just now moving the dial. It's being recognized as the number one pediatric hospital in the country for years and years and years. How do you keep that momentum going? It's almost like, you know, when I walk by Children's Hospital and you see what's going on there in terms of the whole community, whether you're a scientist or an educator or a physician or whatever, what else can you be doing to keep on the top of your game that you're not doing today to keep getting those accolades? Well, from my perspective, it is all about the people. It is hiring the very, very best, uh, both recruiting and then retaining them, because they are the ones who are not only historically the ones who made the difference, but they are the ones who are uh, pushing the boundaries for the next and the next and the next. Um, you know, our motto is we are never satisfied uh, with what we have, with the knowledge we have today, or the tools we have today. And so it's the people who keep saying, I need to find something better. And it all boils down to having the very best people. And when you say never satisfied, you're also never satisfied like your tagline. But I don't think it's a tagline, Roger. It's really, it's a DNA. It's the way you live until every child is well. That is right. Yeah. It is right, and I think that that's how we feel, even though there are children who may never get well. It is about providing them with the best uh, quality of life, uh, the best outcome that they are capable and we are capable of, at least today. And then saying, is it possible that we can even give them more? or other children in the future, even more than what we can do today. So so Forbes magazine said that you were transformative and one of 10 people that are. What makes you transformative in, in your thoughts? 
So I think uh, providing and and um, uh, enabling a whole culture of innovation, where everything is questioned. Um, if you look at the science, how do we make sure that we are really truly providing our science, our science people, our, our researchers, and our faculty with the resources for them to continue to ask, what's the basic understanding of of disease? How do we investigate the biology that really is responsible for disease? And then what can we learn about it? What can we do about it? How can we use that to better diagnose, to better treat one day, hopefully, to prevent or, or cure? So it's so really about being proactive as opposed to reactive to something. Exactly. And that's true across every dimension. Um, how can we make it a better environment for children and families? How do we continue to ask, is there a, an innovative pr- approach or a system or a way of engaging families that they know so much more about their child and how do we incorporate them? How do we use technology and, and digital technology today to enable f- our, our caregivers to do a better job of caring for patients? Every single thing we do whether it is in the kitchen and how we take care of uh, enabling patients to have a better experience with their nutrition and their food, all the way through our valet services and how do we really support our patients as they first enter, all the way through to how do we care for them as they leave us. You know, it's funny, it's almost hospitality in hospitals, if you think there's a a connection. There's absolutely Mm. a connection. You know, as a result of, you know, it's interesting, you look at children's, the playoff talk about innovation, Sandy, you've really are known for a legacy of firsts. As a result of your continued commitment to innovation, you formed recently the Innovation and Digital Health Accelerator a few years ago to support clinical and research leaders as they pursue breakthrough pediatric technology. How is this initiative working out? It's working out so great. Um, you know, one of the things, as you think about innovation, you really need to unleash everybody's great ideas. They may not all be not be something that you make an investment in. But to give people the opportunity to come forward and say, I think this could be a solution for how we manage patients in the emergency room and predict whether they could go up to a floor, or how do we use uh, a a wearable that could predict a a young patient having a seizure. On and on and on. It's sometimes a system and sometimes a clinical issue. So you're really talking about big data in some ways. In, in terms of accumulating all of this information and then drilling it right down. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's using data, it's using technology to facilitate the use of data and apply it to a certain situation. And so um, the chief of our innovation accelerator is a, a wonderful uh, PhD epidemiologist and informatician. Uh, who uh, basically has is using all sources of data, not necessarily just that which is in children's, but data that comes through the cloud, through the web, through uh, Facebook, through a whole host of, of pieces of information, and using it to actually accumulate it and do prediction. And so it's being used now to predict flu, 
So looking across the entire country and the world and saying, how can we gather all these pieces of data, some that are clinical, but some that are behavioral, or some that are just communications that are going back and forth, and saying, how does this roll up to tell us when there might be a flu outbreak? And whether, in fact, that could then be used for things like tracking other kinds of either uh, outbreaks or even bioterrorism and other things. I'm sure also this whole data mining you can use for utilization. Say, for example, like if somebody comes in with a certain health challenge, maybe they shouldn't be seen at Children's Hospital in the main hospital. Maybe they should be, let's say, seen at one of your affiliated hospitals. And therefore, you can use utilization with all the data mining to make sure that you're being as efficient as possible with what you're doing internally in addition to the, you know, you mentioned the flu and other outbreaks or whatever. Yeah, that helps you basically create uh, evidence-based guidance lines to some extent, so that you can have different systems for triaging patients to go to certain places. It gives you a sense, as you look retrospectively, how have people uh, performed in one kind of setting. It's a, it's a kind of a clinical trial approach that you look at the data and you can say, you know, there's a good evidence that patients did very well by not having to go, for instance, from an ICU uh, from an OR directly to an ICU, uh, or because they could potentially go directly to a, a bed. Mm-hmm. And so those kinds of opportunities that the data will help tell you when patients really did well going one direction or another, how you can actually employ those, those pathways in the future. Hmm. You know, one of the things, and, and, and I can understand and appreciate really what you're doing from the medical um, strategy end of it, there's also a business strategy to hospitals, as you well know. And over the course of, say, the last 10 to 15 years, there has been this, you know, sort of phenomenal gobbling up mergers and acquisitions of hospitals in the attempt, I'm guessing, to drive lower costs, at least for themselves. I'm not sure how that's working out in the overall healthcare. Uh, picture, what, 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 and I'm not even sure that that strategy it has worked out. But what are your thoughts? And as you see that happening, how do you think about what you're doing at Children's? So our um, our plan has been to really help enable others to deliver pediatric care locally. So um, tr- pediatric care is usually a component of a delivery system. And so for us to try and uh, acquire other health delivery systems doesn't make sense since the majority of care is in the adult world. But the pediatric component is a critical component of what they do deliver. And our role has been to try and keep care locally. And so the way we've approached it is can we support pediatric care in community hospitals, for instance. And so for the last almost two decades, uh, we've been supporting emergency care, inpatient care, care in the nursery that from our own physicians in those settings so that when patients need care locally, they start there first. And then we have experts who are there in those settings, and if they really need to come to Children's, they can come. But for the majority of care, they can receive it right in their local settings. So it's more how do we enable that care? How do we support um, uh, 
primary care doctors all over the state today in caring for more children because we use protocols, we educate them, we do community kind of, of setting work to keep kids local. And that's the way we've been trying to do this. You know, that seems like a brilliant strategy that I'm, I'm just sort of off the top of my head thinking that other hospitals rather than merge and take sort of over the physical plants and sort of, you know, build up, the, you know, this huge uh, inventory that might not be needed. I, th- I think your system of doing it um, is, is more direct, less cumbersome, and probably more effective. Well, as long as we are delivering value and they see it as we are getting um, the value out of this relationship, and it has to be that we um, that we are keeping every child that can be kept in the community there, uh, that the physicians uh, who we send there are truly enjoying their work and feel very much a part of that organization, um, that the uh, the economics work bilaterally. Uh, that the families truly believe that the care they're receiving in those settings are as much um, the children's standards with quality and safety and experience and all of those things, um, then it really becomes a win-win. And I think it has been a very, uh, very positive strategy. We are trying to make it really durable, too. Yeah, Sandy, you know, when we're talking about this here, right now, one word comes to mind, and it's word partnerships. And Children has created a lot of partnerships to stay abreast of many new developments that affect children's health. And you want to also bring your own discoveries to as many patients as possible. I mean, for starters, we all know as an academic affiliation, you are the primary teaching hospital, as Roger mentioned earlier, of the Harvard Medical School. And your nursing department partners with 27 nursing organizations. But you also have partnerships with research partnerships, medical partnerships, community hospitals, advocacy, commercial, on, on, on. What what kind of partnerships, like right now, are you looking to embrace these partnerships more right now, or are you right now looking to identify new partnerships to extend your brand into other areas to, as you said earlier, to, to provide health care for children in as many areas as possible outside of Longwood Avenue? Good question, Larry. I think first and foremost, it is really important um, for us since we are uh, very focused on, on children. And we're not a huge organization. Partnerships are extremely important for us. And so uh, we know we can't be everything to everyone. So think uh, about uh, both technology and um, the life sciences. We would love to continue to expand our relationships in those areas. We know we don't have all the expertise and that these are two exploding areas in this market. both in technology with artificial intelligence, with digital technology, and trying to figure out how we partner in that area to both leverage what we're doing, but also to incorporate what they're doing into what what we need to do for patients and families. In the biotech area, we absolutely can do up to a certain amount in the bio, in the in the basic biology, translating that to getting it close to patients, but we need partnerships in those areas as well, very deeply. And it goes on and on. I mean, those are just two examples. So, Sandy, that begs the question, how collegial are you with with other children's hospitals, i.e., 
number two on the U.S. News and World Report. Is it a collaborative kind of environment or or, or a little bit more competitive? I'm just curious. We call it co-optition. <laughs> <laughs> Good word. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> we absolutely uh, collaborate and we also compete. And that's true in the Boston area and it's true among the, uh, the children's hospitals. Um, at the federal level, we are constantly working together on behalf of children from an advocacy perspective, from a financing perspective, and, and the like. Uh, we work together on big issues like quality and safety where there is really no need to compete, but where we're all focused on the same goals of improvement. But we all are businesses, and, and we are all looking for patients, and we're all looking for donors, and we're all looking for those partnerships. And so there's a, there's yeah. a I mean, tug it, and pull. It, you know, it's yeah. funny. It strikes me that doctors, must be amongst the most competitive people in the world. I mean, you, know, you, you think about how they you know, got great grades all the way through school and, and whatnot. So I, I'm kind of curious. So a lot of people will, will say, oh, you know, the U.S. News and World Report, that's, that's very nice. But <laughs> I'm going to guess that people are driven to be number one on that. And number four or number five isn't that good. Uh, well, number four and number five uh, At least in, in the competitive in, environment. In the competitive Boston. environment is not where you want to be. Is I think what you're saying. Number four and number yes. five in this country are pretty good. Yes, yes. Uh, but no, but also, I know you and your husband are golfers. The one who wins the Masters, we don't care about the two, three, four, and five, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, um, you know, I think it, it is an acknowledgement to people of the quality. Uh, the impact of their work. And so it's as much not not only wanting the number one slot, but also it's an acknowledgement that what they're doing really has meaning. And I think it continues to inspire people when they have that imprimatur, that they really truly are the leader. You know, it's about it, leadership. You know, I have to really say, Roger, I mean, Sandy, I, you know, we've talked about this before, but really, I really feel you have like one of the best jobs in the world because really, what a proud feeling to enact change what a proud feeling to spare the efforts to improve the lives of children physically and emotionally. But, I mean, what you're doing is monumental. And to have that, if you want to call that, you know, like Roger mentioned, the number one uh, pediatric hospital in the country under your jurisdiction, under your helm, is phenomenal. Um, we talked earlier just briefly that around 600,000 kids and parents come to the hospital every year. I'm just curious, what percent are from the United States? What percent are from international? And are you looking to change those, those percentages, like you mentioned earlier about you know, other countries? What does that all look like? First of all, I do have the very best job in the whole world. You do, it really. And I have it, felt that it, way for it's, it's nearly two decades at Children's. Yeah. Um, but uh, to answer your question, you know, we are becoming an increasingly, uh, we are increasingly becoming a destination for children with rare and complex disease uh, because of what we can do, because we can answer questions that others maybe can't. And perhaps uh, perform different kinds of treatments that others can. And so the the number of children that are coming from um, globally now is over 10 percent, and that's grown mm. over the last decade from about two or three percent. Really? Um, nationally, it's also over 10 percent, mm -hmm. and then from the rest of the region, it's another uh, you know 10, almost 10 percent. 
uh, meaning the New England region and bits of New York. And so over 30% of our patient population is now coming from outside Massachusetts. Do you want to see that go to 40-50, or do you feel 30 to 40 is a nice comfort zone? Well, our challenge today is is capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we are trying to balance our commitment to the local community and to our, our the members of Massachusetts and, and clearly would not want to be having to turn any child away that's that's from our, our local market. Let's, let's talk about capacity for a moment, because I know you're undergoing an expansion. You want to talk about that? Sure. So part of uh, our, our, our goal of really being able to accept every child that needs us, um, we are undergoing a fairly large uh, capital expansion. Uh, we are now just over 400 beds, and this would bring us um, to about 480. Uh, not a huge expansion, but because we are also moving as many children out of our setting because we can now care for so many kids in the ambulatory setting or in the community, as we talked about earlier. Um, We are trying to balance what is being uh, appropriately moved out of the hospital, making room for those who really are much more complex, much more critical. The number of transfers, we have 25% of our population today is transferred from other hospitals. So it's a very high level of uh, very sick children. And that's the kind of building that we're, we're now um, going to be building. Well, how do you, how do, you do you talk about transfer? Let's say you're a child and you've been with Children's Hospital for, I think, the age is 21 years old. At 21, you have your doctors, you have the best care in the country, and now in some way you're told you're 21, you really have to, we have to help you transfer yourself to another hospital, whether it's here or elsewhere, another, another state, because you're no longer you know, a pediatric. What kind of feedback do you get you know, emotionally, empathetically, whatever, to that patient and his family, his or her family, that they have to leave this holy grail that's been with them all their life? Well, it's not just a holy grail. It's a cocoon of sorts because in pediatrics, there are so many more resources that surround a child, even a healthy child in a pediatric practice. That experience is so different from an adult experience. Uh, We experience it with our own children who are healthy, thank God. Uh, We experience it ourselves as adults moving from, from that setting. So moving from a pediatric setting to an adult setting is difficult in the best of circumstances. Mm-hmm. With sick children, children with congenital or chronic diseases, it becomes even more difficult uh, for a variety of reasons. A, it is really a very supportive environment surrounded by many, many different resources. And so trying to prepare those children and those or those young adults and their families for that transition needs to start relatively early. And it's a difficult one. Some people don't want to talk about it, mm-hmm. both on the provider side, who have a hard time letting go, as well as on the patient side, where it really is a very scary transition. On the provider side, on the physician side, and the other end, many of them are also um, a little bit uh, concerned about caring for a childhood disease that has now moved into an adult or a young adult, because they are not always trained in uh, cystic fibrosis or in sickle cell disease or in some of the other major metabolic diseases or a congenital heart problem. Uh, They really begin to take care of adults with adult uh, onset 
mm. adult diseases. Right. And so that transition also becomes very, uh, very difficult. So we have tried to build relationships with uh, physicians here and across the country and around the world where that transition can be done a little bit more uh, thoughtfully and smoothly. Well, you know, one of the transitional things, and, 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 and I have to give children's credit for this. Uh, back, I believe it was in 2007, um, a department was, was started on the question of gender and gender assignment. And as kids started to wrestle with that, children's took a position of trying to work and counsel and come up with the best kind of protocol for that. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Well, uh, Norman Spack, who is a, a wonderful uh, a physician at Children's, was was instrumental in really saying this is a, there. He's an endocrine. He was he's a retired endocrinologist at Children's, um, and he said there's a whole growing group of of patients who are identifying themselves with uh, transgender uh, identity issues, and he said it is our obligation to try and find out how to best care for them from every perspective, uh, endocrinologically and uh, uh, also socially and psychologically and the like. And so he put together a wonderful array of physicians to really be the first uh, clinic and the first program in the country. And uh, not only have we continued that program and continued to support it and it's growing, but he also went around the rest of the country and helped others get started to do the same thing so that uh, families in other parts of the country would not have to travel for, um, for those services. Cindy, I was reading a little while ago talking about behavioral and mental health. And so I want to get your take on this here. According to the Child and Adolescent Health Measurement initiative, we're seeing near epidemic levels of stress and emotional, mental, and behavioral health problems with children. We're living, however, in the greatest age of healthcare innovation history. The possibilities to improve the health and well-being of children are enormous. So what's being done to address this issue? Not enough. Not enough. You know, we uh, at the Children's Hospital Association nationally did a survey uh, a couple of years ago uh, among adults and really asked them about, you know, their just their view. Fifty five percent of the adults at that time said that they believe that emotional and mental health issues of children are worse and are worsening. And they said that. Forty percent of them said that the kids today were physically but not as well off as when they were children. When you hmm. think about, you know, now a generation or two later. Um, one That's in five, It is staggering. Yeah. Hmm. One in five children have a diagnosed mental or behavioral health issue. Hmm. And so when you think about um, 20% of the children with a diagnosed problem, And then you think about all the kids who are yet to be identified but are struggling in school or are struggling within the family. It is a growing problem. We're seeing it uh, not only at Boston Children's in kids who present to our emergency room and end up staying for, you know, a number of days because there aren't beds or there aren't facilities or there aren't clinics for them because they're all overwhelmed by this problem. Is it really worse or is by, with today's technology, we're better able to diagnose it today than we were when we were children? 
We think it's worse. Are you seeing things that are exacerbating the problem or, you know, you know, when we were growing up, they just didn't diagnose stuff and we just dealt with it. They told us we were crazy. <laughs> right, Go to your homework. Right, right. Yeah, well, <laughs> right, yeah. well, that's true. I mean, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of contributors. You know, I think uh, we also just, just started our first cyberbullying clinic. Oh, really? We have started our first um, social media addiction clinic. Kids addicted to social media and their cell phones. Because there are new things that are entering the space that are beginning to really impact children and uh, their ability to function in school and function, you know, in in the home. And um, we've been in schools now. We have a program that's been in place for about 15 years in the Boston Public Schools uh, called the Children's Hospital Neighborhood Partnership. And what we've tried to do is go upstream um, to see if in the schools we can identify children who are at risk, Mm -hmm. at risk because they've been exposed to violence, um, whether it's in the society or in the home, and really try and identify, in fact, whether we can do something very early. We've put social workers and psychologists in the primary care office, in the pediatrician's office, so that we can try and get at some of these issues that are being identified by mostly the parents, and say, can we intervene sooner so these kids don't end up in much more crisis? Can you take us through, like, I mean, I, you know, in branding, you know, we all know here, all, all three of us, that, you know, great brands are bold and disruptive. And when you talk about this cyber um, bullying clinic, can you just take us through how that works? I mean, I'm just curious, like, how, how it happens. And so far, how has the receptivity been with the children who are uh, in this clinic? So it's relatively new. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Peter Rafali is one of our neurologists. And they were seeing, uh, you know, a lot of children come in with um, bullying trauma. And they basically said, we've got to try and figure out if there's a way to, um, first of all, deal with the children who are impacted by it, but also then try and figure out, because of the, you know, of the basic uh, trying to understand how this all comes about. What, what age group are we talking about primarily? Um, it's, to some extent, it can be quite young. It can yeah. be kids six years old, but it goes up largely to adolescence. Mm-hmm. And so um, they are now trying to figure out uh, what is the you know what, what is the source of this. Um, they're trying to understand not only how to help each individual child. But each case presents data and information, going back to some of the the data. What is it telling us about um, how cyberbullying is actually impacting and what can we actually do about it? So it's in its very early stage, but they have said there's a cluster of patients that we need to zero in on with a very specific targeted problem. I'm curious, how does uh, the Children's Hospital look like an like an uh, an icon like Doctor Spock, who you know had his yeah. you know books and 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 sort of talked about the common sense approach, uh, you know, to medicine or, or or seeing doctors and that type of thing. How does children's embrace what Doctor Spock said, and do they say, "Oh, that was yesterday"? 
Oh, I think there's still, a, a, you know, if you go all the way down into the primary care setting, the pediatrician's office, I would say most of that is still very, very uh, ap- uh, applicable. And, um, you know, have they debunked some of those things? I would assume there are some things that perhaps have been debunked, but some of it is just pure, proper parenting. It's child development at its root. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, one of the things that we're spending a lot of time on across many, many of our specialty areas is trying to understand child development all the way down to how does the brain develop? You know, how do those folds in the brain mm. actually occur and what do they mean? And, and we've got uh, imaging scientists that are actually studying the developing brain from the fetus all the way through to the newborn to age two or three and watching that and trying to also pair it with, well, when does language start? What does the brain look like? When does, um, when does the ability to speak and, and not just you know, language understanding, but language speaking. And what does that part of the brain look like? So there's some wonderful work going on now trying to understand not just what are the inputs, but what is, what is at the source of child development? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure during the course of a year, there are many breakthroughs that, that, that take place at Children's Hospital. What, what are the types of things that might have happened in the last six months that give you goosebumps? Because at the rate of change that's taking place today... What, what types of things do you say, wow? Oh, there's so Cindy, many of are these, them. Are these what you call your wow projects? Yes, I do. Cause, yes, because I've heard that you have wow projects. So within yeah. the last couple of months, we have started a gene therapy trial for sickle cell disease. Now, we have not been able to, to tackle that disease. It is a devastating disease. But one of our scientists, Dr. Stu Orkin, and, and his team uh, basically identified the switch that actually turns the fetal hemoglobin into adult normal hemoglobin. And it's the fetal hemoglobin that if it doesn't get turned into adult hemoglobin, becomes sickle cell disease. They have been able to identify not only what that switch is, but they've been able to then understand not only which genes do it, but how to alter those genes taking a patient's own cells, modifying the gene, and then reinfusing those cells back into a patient. We are so excited about the possible impact that that will have on children with sickle cell disease. So this will theoretically eliminate it? It could eliminate it. We are hoping because, and the reason why we're so excited about that is this is about our ninth gene therapy trial using very much of the same uh, technique, the same biological genetic approach. And seven years ago, it's not in the last six, but it's the (laughs) evidence that we have that you build on to actually go to the next and the next. Seven years ago, we did this exact kind of gene therapy uh, trial on bubble boy disease, severe combined immunodeficiency. Mm -hmm. And we were able to not only treat but cure several children. Wow. One of the chi- children is now, because we follow all of them, but one of them I've been following, and he is now back in Argentina. He's seven years old, and he is not only treated, he is cured of his underlying immunologic disease. So it's those kinds of um, 
breakthroughs that not only treat one disease, but explode into treating many others. And that's really where we're so excited about gene therapy, stem cell therapy that Lenzon is Mm -hmm. working on uh, at Boston Children's. And so it's really those kinds of things that just have us so excited. There there was one story that Children's has been involved with, and it was was sort of very close to me, Sam Burns and Progerio. Oh, yes. And Sam did a, a documentary Reaction on HBO, Life According to Sam. This was the uh, the gene that aged very, very quickly. And uh, his parents, his mother is a physician, his father is a physician, but his mother, I believe, is working at Children's now. She, uh, she is the head of the Progeria Foundation. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Leslie. And, and uh, making some dramatic changes, even though I guess it's what you, you call, a, it's a very small population of people that very are small. impacted, very but small. because it has to do with aging, it can impact a huge population, all of us, as we get older. So they have been able to extend, if, if I'm not mistaken, yes. the lifespan. That's of, right. Uh, and they've. Um, this is a, a, a project that's also been going on for about seven or eight years, maybe longer. Uh, funded by the Progeria Foundation and and uh, and Children's, and uh, we are the only place I think in the world that are that is doing this work on this. This this is why we are really focusing on these rare diseases. Um, there's relatively few patients in those populations, but the learnings from those can also explode to many many other either age groups or diseases or the like. And that's that's really something that uh, I think we're all uh, very excited about. Um, we also have um, uh, a wonderful scientist, uh, Beth Stevens, who's doing work in the developing brain. And she has identified, I'll give you an example of how it could explode. Uh, she's identified these cells in the brain called microglia. And what they do is prune other cells. It's like uh, pruning a bonsai right, tree right. <laughs> to get it to the right shape and, and to, uh, uh, in the brain, it's, it's to produce normal function. She is trying to figure out if there, when the, this process in the brain goes awry, what diseases may be caused by that malfunction. She was trying to determine whether schizophrenia in adolescence is caused by a malfunction in this pruning. But as she's gone through and studied this, the questions are, are, is this possibly what could go awry with neurodegenerative diseases, even neurodegenerative diseases that get turned on later in life like Alzheimer's? Alzheimer's. So those are the kinds of things where science, you know, doesn't, it's not necessarily, she didn't start out to try and understand Alzheimer's, but this may lead to something that could be pursued as well. So that's what's so exciting about some of the some mm. of the science that may even start in children, but also may have implications way beyond children. That's giving me goosebumps. Well, yeah, it does. Really, it's really. I mean, really, we could talk for hours about this. Is, this is amazing. But you know, all this also takes money, funds to be able to embark on these types of studies, right? What is your um, goal? In terms of money, I know we always want always want more money, but are you satisfied to a degree right now, or never satisfied? Because naturally, you want to keep breaking new ground. So share with us that, Sandy, as far as the whole fundraising and the funding uh, situation at Children's. So the biggest challenge in my job as the CEO is trying to support 
all of the incredible work that's going on. And that's in the research area, it's in the clinical area, it's in the in the training area. So they all need resources to continue to do the work that we're doing. Um, there's never enough because there's always uh, a challenge. Someone um, in the NIH cuts back on their funding. What do you do with a great project that didn't get funded? So it needs bridge funding. There's a new recruit that someone says, if I could only have this piece added to the other components, it adds a dimension that will help us understand this even better. Um, there's, um, there's an idea that won't be ready for NIH funding because NIH funding only funds things that are partially proven. And they will then allow you to keep going to move it further. So you need philanthropy to actually initiate some of that work. So it really is almost endless in terms of the So you're always trying to show proof of concept in order to get the next stage. Exactly right. Yeah. So mm. it's either bridging or mm. it's adding or it's initiating. Sandy, one of the things you said earlier was taking care of the family, so not just the children, uh, but their parents as well. And something I always think about when I think about children's is sort of the Ronald McDonald House and, 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 and how that embraces families. Could you talk a little bit about that? So at Boston Children's, we talk about child-centered care and family-centered care. And uh, when a child is sick, it is the most difficult time in any family's life. Um, not only as it affects that child and that family, but their other children, and sometimes major extended families. And so we have very much felt as though we are taking care of not just the child, but the whole family. And we engage the family in uh, every aspect. We believe that they are as important part of the care team as we are because they know their child better than anybody, including us as caregivers. Um, we have had for over 35 years a patient family advisory committee. And that committee today is made up of 20 wonderful parents. And uh, they have really, they have spread out and included others, and they bring in others uh, as they meet them and they learn who wants to be involved. And they sit on over 100 co uh, committees. Believe it or not, we have over 100 committees. Oh. <laughs> but um, they sit on almost every aspect of uh, what it's uh, you know what it's like to be delivering care at Boston Children's. So they are embedded. Their opinions are absolutely listened to. Uh, they tell us what works and what doesn't. Uh, it helps us form uh, our next set of projects for improving experience. And uh, we also have a teen advisory committee because teens are not little children. And so each group needs to have their, their own very focused approach. Um, as you say, it's like hospitality. You deal very much with different groups, and they have very different needs. And so that's um, like something we feel strongly yeah. about. That's awesome. You know, you know one, one, of, one of the questions, and I'm, I'm going to guess this is on your mind too, Larry, uh, is that because we tend to be germaphobes. So <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering, okay, you oversee Children's Hospital. Children are amongst the great carriers of colds and flus and everything else. 
How do you protect yourself when you go into work every day? I mean, I'm sure you don't have <laughs> well, uh, 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 you know, the endless cold. No, no, no. It's Cindy's home. So the water is Purell coming out. <laughs> you're not. You're, you're. You're. That's not a joke. We wash our hands constantly, and it is something that we are we are rabid about among our among not just our all our caregivers and everybody at Children's is a caregiver, but we also try and impress that upon our, our families because, um, you know, the, the environment is one that is that the children are vulnerable, uh, but our staff are vulnerable. We require every individual at Children's who works with us to get a flu shot. It's a requirement. And so there are certain things that we have set as expectations, both in terms of hand washing and other means of, of uh, protecting children. But also, we expect our, our team to, to, to also participate. You don't wear a mask when you're in the office, do you? No. <laughs> well, no it's the only reason why. The office is in the, is in the hospital right now. I don't wear a mask. But once you go back to the hospital, you have a mask on again. <laughs> very, very good. So, right now, Sandy, what we want to do is we have something called a lightning round. These are fast questions and fast answers, okay? Uh-oh. So my first question, Sandy, after president and CEO of Sandy Fenwick, what title might we see in the future? Sandy Fenwick author or Sandy Fenwick public speaker? Public speaker. If you were an oracle, what's the one major thing you might expect to see in healthcare five years from now? Much more involvement of the new patient consumer. Sandy, who in your life has been quite an inspiration to you, has been one of your mentors? Uh, Dr. Mitchell Rabkin, who was the CEO of uh, Beth Israel Hospital. He was one of the most incredible leaders, um, and I have role modeled so much of what he did at BI. Uh, if you were to pick a country, talking about the healthcare system, outside of the U.S. that you think has a pretty good model, what country would that be? Probably Canada. I think Canada has um, really uh, allowed for innovation and um, advancement and excellence, and yet has uh, truly been able to deliver care to a pretty broad population. If you didn't focus your career initially, Sandy, in healthcare, what do you think you'd be doing today? Science. Science. I am absolutely intrigued by science. I started out in science. Um, I did four years. I, I did biology and chemistry and pre-med before I, uh, before I went into administration. And science was and continues to be what inspires and interests me. So what fantasy job outside of science and in yeah. hospitals, <laughs> what fantasy job would you like to do? So boring, I can't even. No. Get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, I you know, fantasy job, stay home grandma. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right. Sandy, you work twenty four eight at Children's, right? What does Sandy's downtime look like? Uh, family, yeah. uh, first and foremost. Uh, my children have always been first and foremost. I've been married for 44 years to a wonderful husband, and we love doing all kinds of wonderful things together. Uh, and now my grandchildren. And uh, it really is about family. Awesome. All right, if you couldn't take your family and you were going on vacation with your husband, where would you go? Oh, around the world. 
I would love to really not stop and just keep going. Ah, 80 day, huh? And eight, around the world in 80 days. <laughs> or, le- or more. <laughs> okay. Taking off, let's say, you and your husband, you're still on vacation, right? Because I know you and your husband love playing golf, Sandy. What's your favorite golf course you've played at? Um, Poipu Beach in, in Hawaii. Okay. Great. I hate golf. I okay. Know. I'm still trying to convince Rod to, to play one round of miniature golf with me. A miniature golf I will do, Larry. You know, we, we can get on. All right. Well, Sandy, thank you very much for joining us today. I, th- I think a great conversation. Uh, really? It's fascinating. Absolutely You're a fascinating. great leader running a great institution, and we're just uh, honored to learn about more about that. Thank so you. Thank it you. It is the best place in the world for children, and I'm honored to be part of it. Remember to subscribe to Name Brands on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. We're at Name Brands Pod on Twitter, on Facebook at Name Brands Podcast. That's it for us. We'll be back to talk to you again next Wednesday. 